Good morning, church family. Welcome to Mission Sunday. My name is Josh Stevens. I have the honor of serving on your elder board here. And uh, I'm also, as part of that role, uh, liaison to the Global Missions Team, our GMT. And uh, the Global Missions Team has a strategy of uh, sending our own of the two unreached people groups, the Tatar Malay, as well as um, the Global Compassionate Care uh, with a focus on Uganda. So today I'm wearing my Thailand shirt from uh, visiting our, sending our own missionaries in Thailand, the Mahawan family. And um, today we get to hear from Matthew Ellison, who is doing some coaching for our GMT. Um, Matthew is a strategy coach working for 1016, no, 1615. Sorry, 1016 is a place in town here, right? <laughs> All those numbers. Uh, 1615 Church Mission Coaching, and uh, Matthew is the Chief Ministry Officer, Co-Founder, and Church Mission Coach for 1615. Um, He's the author of When Everything is Missions, and he's working with, as I said, our Global Missions team on some revisioning work that they're working on right now with a few of us elders on that team, as well as some of our staff working together to launch us into the next phase of missions here at Midland Free, and you'll hear about that more uh, as we get into the new year. Matthew is also from New Mexico, so I would uh, appreciate if we could give a nice warm winter welcome to Matthew Ellison. Emphasis on warm. I'm from the desert, so... uh... My windows wouldn't roll down this morning. I'm going to have the defrosters on. I was staying right over here at the residence inn, so the drive is short, but it was so frosted I couldn't see. And I got the frost off the front and the back, and I was too cold to go out and scrape. And I, they wouldn't roll down. They were stuck. So uh, thank you for the cold introduction, folks. <laughs> well, as was mentioned, I currently have the honor of working with 1615, not 1016. Uh, It's named after the reference in Mark's gospel, in case you're wondering. Mark chapter 16, verse 15, which says, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. And we do something called church missions coaching. And the reason that our ministry exists today is because there's a massive move in local churches across the United States who are not just content to do missions by only serving in support roles. They want to be actively engaged. They want to actively engage the gifts and the talents and the passions of their whole body. There's a growing number of churches who are not content just to do shotgun missions, just reacting to requests for funding. They want to become more intentional and more proactive. So we come alongside churches. We help them to focus and clarify their mission. And then we help them to develop an endemic vision, a vision that accounts for their uniqueness as a church, their history, their passions, their connections. And you have a great missions history. We're building on that history, but we're clarifying and focusing your vision for the future. As was mentioned, I've been meeting with some of your elders and the GMT over the past seven months, and we've looked back. It's one of the things we've done. We've looked back and celebrated all that God has done thus far, and we've cited those evidences of grace But folks, we're also looking ahead because we're trusting that the best and most fruitful days and missions are not behind you, they're out in front of you. So you're going to hear about that vision in the coming months, in the coming new year, and here's the thing, you're going to hear how you can be a part of it. 
One of the things that we're emphasizing is that missions is not just for the missions-minded few, but it is for every follower of Christ. So not only are you going to hear about a clarified vision for the future, you're going to hear how you can be a part of that vision. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for mercy. We thank you that you withhold from us the punishment that we all deserve. We did not wake up this morning asking for you to give us what we deserve. We asked for mercy. We asked you to give us what we don't deserve. And we thank you that you preserve justice by punishing Jesus in our place. You don't just turn your back on our sins or sweep them under some cosmic rug. No, Father, our sins were punished in your Son. We thank you for grace. Thank you that you credit to us the righteousness of Jesus. His righteous life is our righteous life through faith. He is our curse bearer. He is our law keeper. Thank you for making us your boys and your girls. And wonder of wonders, we're not just your children, but we are invited into the family business of making disciples of all nations. I pray for Midland, God. I I pray for this church. Thank you for the rich history of reaching the nations. Thank you for the last many months as we have set aside time to consider what you have next. And we do pray that the best and most fruitful days in missions would be out in front. We pray that you would move for the sake of your name and for the sake of your renown. God, and if anyone is not yet participating in your global work, we pray that as they hear about the vision in the coming months, that they would find their place. Superintend this morning, send your spirit, and move upon the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in the midst of my travels, I often hear mission church leaders pose the following question. Why after 2,000 years since Christ gave the Great Commission... Is almost 40% of the world still waiting for the gospel? It's a good question. Why do so many nations still wait for the gospel when limitless spiritual resources have been given to us in Christ? That's what Paul said, right? He's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. When we consider the unbelievable abundance of physical and human resources that have been given by God to his church, when we consider, after all, that the Great Commission was the marching orders of Jesus Christ to his church, why do so many nations still wait for the gospel? Now, answers to that question very widely. Many say that the world still waits because of a lack of partnership. They say that churches and ministries are so busy and focused on building their little kingdoms that they don't work together to build the larger kingdom of God. Some say we need new methods. Our methods are out of date. Others say it's a strategy problem. Our strategies are ineffective given the situation in the world today. Still others claim that the world still waits because of an inequitable distribution of Christian resources. Several years ago, I spoke at a missions conference, and one of the speakers 
said with great force as he pounded the pulpit, it's a resource problem. His claim was that if Christians in the prosperous West, the developed world, would share their resources with Christians in the developing world where most of the least reached people live, that the cause would get completed. Well, the problem with all these answers is that none of them deal with the core issues. They simply surface the symptoms of why the world still waits. Ultimately, I believe that the reason the world still waits is not a pragmatic one. It is not specifically a funding or a resource or a strategy issue. In the end, it's not even about our struggle to meaningfully partner with others in the body of Christ. Is it possible that nearly 3 billion people are still waiting to hear about the gospel of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ? Because those that name his name are not convinced that he's all that great? Is it possible that for many Christians, Jesus is little more than a religious side interest? I mean, he's useful for escaping hell, but perhaps not much else. I wonder... Do we, and by we I mean me too. A good preacher will always preach to himself as well. The message is always for him. Do we have an all-consuming passion to know Jesus Christ in the fullness of his perfections? To treasure him more than we treasure anyone, anything, any accomplishment in the world. You see, maybe the world still waits because we are not yet burnt up with fervent desire to know him. Friends, to make disciples of all nations, we need solid methodologies. We need sound strategies that are in touch with global realities. We need to understand the complexities of taking the gospel to the least reached peoples. In short, we need an abundance of mission, skill, and knowledge. And make no mistake, the absence of all those things will hinder our global work. But there is a necessity to know God. And it is far more than a demand, folks. It is a requirement. Because here's the thing. If we don't know God, we don't have a ministry. Not knowing God destroys ministry. If we would be people that inflame the world for God's glory, then folks, first we must burn. We must be ignited. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, in fact, everyone should have a Bible because you have a smartphone today, right? No excuse for not having a Bible in your pocket. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. I've entitled this morning's message, Let Worship Be the Fuel for Missions Flame. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8. I'm going to read it, and then We will work together to see if we can't discover what it was that ignited the prophet to know God, but also to make God known. So Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, 
Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. The first thing we see in this passage is a crisis in verses 1 through 4. Isaiah's commission into God's purposes began with a lofty vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I saw the Lord. Those are four very important words. I saw the Lord. He had what A.W. Tozer called a crisis of encounter. Let me define crisis for you. This comes from Webster's. A decisive point or situation When he saw the Lord, it was a decisive point in his life. It was a definitive life experience. In fact, for the prophet, his life would never again be the same. And the word he uses here for Lord is emphatic. It's the Hebrew word Adonai. It means this, the supreme Lord of all who is over all. You might say this was a vision of majestic royalty and holiness beyond all imagination. Isaiah had ideas about God before this, but this was something altogether different. Now, I said this was a vision of Jesus Christ. It's what theologians call a Christophany, and that that just means an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. And how do I know this is a Christophany? Well, we're not going to get into it, but sometime today when the games are in between or halftime or whatever, there's a break, I want you to go to John chapter 12, verses 39 through 41, and it will become clear... That Isaiah in this passage is beholding the glory of the only begotten son. Not yet begotten. This is a vision, folks, of the pre-incarnate Jesus. And I want you to notice that he didn't see Jesus until Uzziah died. Now, why is this? Well, I believe it's possible And the scripture doesn't tell us this exactly, so there's a little speculation here on my part. But I think it's possible that the prophet did not have his eyes on the king of kings, but on the king of Judah. He was focused on Uzziah and maybe not Christ. After all, if you look historically, as far as the kings of Judah went, Uzziah was a pretty decent king, at least until the end of his life. Under his reign, it was a time of unprecedented national prosperity. Things were good in Judah. It was a time of abundance for the people of Judah. And so is it possible that even the prophet was distracted? That he was focused on an earthly kingdom? That's relevant for us, folks. 
instead of being focused on a heavenly kingdom. I think it's possible he was focused on the king, small k. He did not have his focus on the king of kings, capital K. Chuck Swindoll wrote these words. God reserves the discovery of the depth of himself to those whose hearts are completely his. He reserves the discovery of the depth of who he is to those whose hearts are completely his. So I think it's possible here that up until this point, the prophet had a fragmented heart. It wasn't solely the Lord's. You see, it's entirely possible to be familiar with the good things God has created while never having been introduced to the presence of the uncreated. Do you get that? It's possible to be familiar with the good things God has created and yet never have been introduced to the presence of the uncreated one, Jesus. It's possible to love all the wonderful things about Christianity and not even know who Christ is. Matthew 5, 8. Familiar words, I'm sure, from the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall... They're going to what? See God. Oh, how happy are the pure in heart who have a single heart. They're going to see Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says something similar in Hebrews 12, 14. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see God. If we want to make our lives count for the sake of eternity, folks, then we must have a sharp and stunning encounter with Christ. But here's the thing. We'll never see him as he really is until we have a heart united in fear of his glory. That's what the psalmist prayed for. God, give me a heart united in fear of your glory. Not with some parts belonging to you and some parts not belonging to you. Give me a single heart was the prayer of the psalmist. Now, this brings up a very important question for all of us. And once again, I'm preaching to me. I'm here, but I'm also down there in a sense. Do we have any Uzziahs in our life that need to be dethroned, deposed? Is there anything in your life that is competing for God's attention or his affection? And here's the thing about a Uzziah. It could be a person. It could be a possession. It could be a habit. It could be unforgiveness. It could be bitterness. I've even learned that the ministry itself can be a Uzziah. If there's anything that is clouding your vision of Jesus, that is preventing you from seeing him from the place of an undefiled conscience, remove it by the grace of God. Let Uzziah go so that you can see Jesus more clearly. That's where the fuel for missions flame begins. Let me share with you something I've learned about Uzziahs. And in context here, the things that would distract us or lead us away from Christ. Have you ever noticed that Uzziahs, those things that tempt us away from God, that draw us away from Him, they gain power over us by convincing us they can make us happier than God can. Think about this for just a second. If you're a Christian, if you love Jesus... You don't enthrone Uzziah and put him on the throne of your heart because you have to. 
because you're obligated to. You, you don't wake up in the morning and say, I, I've got a daily quota of sin to meet today. Not if you love Jesus. You enthrone Uzziah. You enthrone the counterfeit kings when you believe in the possibility of their offering making you happier than God can. When you believe that they can satisfy you more than God can. So here's the application. If we would burn bright for the glory of God here and around the world, then we must rebel against Uzziah's coup. We can't settle for second-rate pleasures when God offers to us at his right hand pleasures forevermore. So if we want to burn bright for the glory of God, folks, then Uzziah must be dethroned. Now, take a look at these creatures that attend this crisis of encounter. They're very unusual. They're called seraphim. And seraphim is translated holy burners or burning ones. Just think about that for a second. Holy burners, burning ones. And don't mistake these as cute, chubby little cherubs that you might see on a Hallmark Valentine's Day card, folks. These are nothing like that. These are amazing and terrible celestial beings. And they circle Jesus in grand array and they worship him. They celebrate his holiness and they require that his servants be cleansed before they are commissioned. Look at their anatomy. Six wings. I've often tried to picture these seraphim in my mind's eye. With two, they're covering their face with two of their wings. With two of their wings, they're covering their feet. And with two rings, they are flying. Notice, four wings are dedicated to reverence and worship. When Moses had an encounter with the glory of God at the burning bush, what did he do? Well, one, he couldn't look, right? He could not look upon God's glory, and he had to also remove his sandals. So these seraphim, they're created, right? Created by God. They're creatures. But folks, they're not marred by sin like we are, and even they have to veil their faces because of Jesus' glory. And of course, too, they cover their feet, which speaks of reverence. And then they have two wings to fly around and do the Lord's will. So I don't think it's coincidental here that the seraphim give more of their attention to worship than to service. There's a two-thirds emphasis on worship and adoration. And there's a one-third emphasis on service. Now, now service is an outgrowth of worship. And we know that when service is rightly performed, it is in fact worship. But here's the point that I think the seraphim make with their anatomy. Service is important, but it cannot precede worship for the sake of worship. Have you ever noticed there is a pressure in life and in ministry, and it's almost irresistible to take God for granted, to take worship for granted, and to give ourselves to service to God, to focus on things that seem to be more urgent, more practical, more pressing at the time. And folks, when this happens, our very efforts to serve God actually end up marginalizing Him. I think of Martha and Mary. You know the story. It was better to be at His feet. She chose the better thing. Nothing can take the place of worship for the sake of worship. John Piper writes these words, Worship is the fuel and goal of missions. 
Missions begins and ends in worship. Where zeal for worship is weak, zeal for missions will be weak. So Isaiah is getting stirred up to make much of Jesus by seeing much of Jesus. And here's the cry of the seraphim. They say, holy, 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 in a voice so loud that the very thresholds of heaven shake. Now, this holy, holy, holy is an ecstatic ascription. It's emphatic. They're not stuttering, folks. They repeat themselves for the sake of emphasis. One holy is not enough. Two holy is not enough. Three is not enough. But it's repeated for the sake of emphasis. This is known in Hebrew literature as the trisagion. And it means he's holy beyond comparison. How does one define the holiness of Jesus? Well, because definitions depend on similarities, right? Your school teacher, you know, that, or an English teacher, definitions depend on similarities. So if we want to define one thing, we look for something else that is similar or like it to provide ideas to help us understand it. So when we attempt to define the holiness of God, we say things like this, pure, otherworldly, unspoiled. And if you have a really big vocabulary like one theologian does, here's how you do it. He says, holy is this, altogether different, absolute unique, and uncreated moral perfection. It's pretty good, right? Absolutely unique, altogether different, uncreated moral perfection. But here's the problem. Even The very best attempts to define the holiness of Jesus are dingy gray at best. Because definite definitions depend on comparisons. But what or who do you compare Jesus Christ to? He is incomparable. So in some ways he is undefinable. Story has it that when Leonardo da Vinci was painting the Last Supper in the Sistine Chapel, that he painted all of the disciples at the table. But he hesitated to paint the face of Christ. He would come to his work. He would pace. He would become frustrated. He would leave. This happened over and over. Again, story has it that he finally exclaimed one day, It's no use. I can't paint him. That's what it's like trying to describe the holiness of Jesus. And by the way, his holiness is his only attribute in the scripture that is raised to the third power. Hold on to that for just a second. I know you love the scriptures at this church. I've been in meetings with your leaders. It is his only attribute that is raised to the third power. God is saying something incredibly important about his holiness. He does nothing willy-nilly. That's worth meditating on. Notice their focus. Verse 3, they say the whole earth is full of his glory. The glory of God is the radiance of his holiness. One theologian says, his glory is seen when his holiness goes public. It's the radiance or the outpouring of his holiness. And we know that one day that the glory of God will fill the earth the way the waters cover the seas. And that's what the Great Commission is all about, right? And the cry of the seraphim anticipate this event. Now, the Hebrew word for glory is the word kabod. And it means this, to make weighty or heavy. So the weightiness of God was closing in on Isaiah, reducing him to his proper size. He was feeling the weight of God. 
Consider the impact of this encounter, folks. It is quite disturbing. And I believe this whole scene is meant to stun us and to silence us and to destroy our complacencies about Jesus. And when this happened, as you notice, verse 4, things get shaken up. The very thresholds of heaven shake. I don't believe it's possible to truly behold Jesus and remain the same. When you encounter him, he will shake up your life. And I want you to notice this. These inanimate objects of wood and stone had the good sense to tremble and shake before Jesus. And yet I've talked to ex-church members and they say the reason they stopped going to church is because they thought it was boring. Well, I believe the reason so many people find worship boring is because God isn't present at those churches. Now, he's present in the sense that he's omnipresent. But there's not a group of people who esteem him, who treasure him. I mean, when the messages are belittled, um, when the messages are entitled Seven Steps to Success or How Can Everyone Get Along and How to Become a Better You, folks, when that happens, God does not come through for who he is. But when he is exalted, when he is lifted up, people are drawn to Jesus Christ. A.W. Tozer wrote these words, A true encounter with God will be permanent and life-changing. The experience may be brief, but the results will be evident in the life of the person touched as long as he or she lives. So the first thing we see here is crisis. Now we're going to move on at a better clip now. All the points are not that long, okay? Confession is the next thing we see. Verse 5. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Having beheld God's glory, Isaiah confesses. He basically pronounces judgment upon himself. And he says, I am ruined or undone is what it means. Other translation says it means to be destroyed or made silent. His language suffered under the effort to express what he was seeing. You might say that the beauty of Jesus left him Speechless. Friends, if there ever was a together type of person in Judah, it was Isaiah ben Amos. And yet here in the presence of Christ, he's coming apart at the seams. He's experiencing personal disintegration. You might say the prophet's unraveling. His self-worth and self-esteem are being shattered. You see, I read this and I don't get the idea that Isaiah is skipping around in God's presence. He's in pain. He's filled with fearful trembling and self-loathing. We don't know all that he was thinking, but to say woe is me is very telling. It's judgment. It was one thing for prophets to pronounce judgment on others, but another thing altogether for them to pronounce judgment upon themselves. You see, seeing the uncreated holiness of Christ made him conscious of his sin in a whole new way. This vision of Jesus gave the prophet an accurate view of himself, and in the end, it moved him to complete silence. And aware of his unworthiness, he confesses his sin, and he confesses the holiness of God. He also confesses the iniquity of his people. Now, several years ago, something jumped out at me reading this passage that I had never seen before, and I read it many times. But I want to show it to you by asking you a question. 
In context here, what was it that absolutely wounded this prophet to the core and produced such brokenness and such sorrow? What's going on here? What was it that wounded the prophet and crushed his soul? Notice, there are no threats owing to judgment. No mention of the unbelievable consequences of sin. No mention of hell. No mention of conscious, terrifying torment for the unrighteous. Folks, he was broken by seeing the beauty of God's holiness. He was transformed by beauty. You see, sometimes I'm sorry over my sin because, guess what, I fear the consequences of disobedience. I'm sorry over my sin because I got caught. Anyone relate to this? Come on. But that's not what is going on here. This is repentance. It's the result of Isaiah seeing the holiness and the beauty of Jesus and realizing that Jesus was precisely what his soul had been longing for, except he had been looking elsewhere. So application. My friends, how can we be sorrowful about not having holiness if we don't treasure it? How can we be sorrowful about not having holiness if we don't treasure holiness? Or to say this another way, how can we weep over not being holy if we don't love holiness? We can't. And so God here leads the prophet to repentance. Not by pointing his almighty finger and saying, you worthless, treasonous worm. He says, Isaiah, let me show you something. This is what you were made for, Isaiah. He sees the beauty of Christ. And it brings sorrow knowing that he had not been treasuring Christ. So Isaiah gives a 1 John 1, 9 response here. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Confess means to agree. He's agreeing, I'm a sinner. God, you are righteous and holy. Heard it said that the man who thinks he has something to offer God, save his broken life, is not fit for service. The man who thinks he has something to offer God, save his broken life, is not fit for service. So there are many of us who want to be mighty for God, folks, but first there must be an undoing and an unraveling. Now, if the story ended here, we'd be in some big trouble, but he's not only infinitely holy, he is infinitely merciful. The next point is cleansing. So Isaiah's confession led to an immediate cleansing. The seraphim take a coal from the altar. They touch his mouth. His guilt is taken away. His sin is removed. His sincere confession led to this immediate cleansing. You might say that Isaiah's fearful trembling now becomes joyful trembling. And not only did God remove his sin, and this is really important, but his guilt. It is so important that we minister out of a sense that we are forgiven. I can't believe I'm forgiven. That we don't do ministry as penance to pay God off for our debts. But we say, God, I can't believe that you've made me your son or your daughter and I get to be a part of this. That's what's happening here is guilt is taken away. This live, hot coal touches his lips. It's a wounding, folks, understand that. I imagine searing flesh in this vision, pain, 
but it's a wounding that brought healing. Fire is often a metaphor that God uses to describe himself, is it not? So Isaiah is getting ignited here. He's becoming a holy burner. A great preacher once said, only fire can dwell with fire. Take a piece of iron or steel and place it in the fire and it will absorb the heat and begin to glow with incandescent brightness. Get the picture. You spend time with Christ in his word. And the more you're near him, the more you see him, the more you love him, the more you begin to burn for him and for his glory. So to be cleansed, we must confess. We know that. We must forsake sin, not just because it's dangerous and it's deadly, it is, but because we've found in Christ something better. And when that happens, we begin to dwell with God. And when we dwell with him, we burn for him. The next thing is the commission, verse 11. Isaiah hears, um, excuse me, verse 8. He hears the words, whom shall we send? Who will go for us? So get this, only when Isaiah was cleansed did he hear the call of the Lord. First comes the cleansing, then comes the commissioning. And our commission is similar in that we are to declare the word of God to the world. But I want you to notice how different the results are that we can expect. If you have time today, again, when you're not watching football, if this is stirring your interest, read on. Isaiah is commissioned, and we find out shortly after, if you continue reading Isaiah, that he is commissioned into a calling, folks, where he's not going to see any visible responses. I'm going to pick on Jeremy here. Imagine getting a calling at the beginning of this entrance into ministry, and God said, no one will come. No one's going to respond. You will see no visible fruit from your gospel proclamation. That's a tough thing to sign up for. (laughs) Isaiah was told in advance, I'm commissioning you to a people who will not listen to you. Here's our commission. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. (laughs) That's a different commission. We have the assurance that one the earth, the way the waters cover the seas. We don't know how it's all going to happen, but we know one day there will be a witness of Jesus that surrounds the globe. We'll all respond, no. But we have the assurance that the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world because Jesus said so. So that being the case, We can embrace our commission, the Great Commission, with this great sense of expectancy. Isaiah could not, and yet he was consumed by the commission. Why? Because he had beheld the glory of Jesus, the holiness of Jesus, and he was set on fire. How much more consumed ought we to be? Last point, consumed. Verse 8. His response to God's commission? Me. Here I am. Send me. He beheld the holiness of Jesus. He had heard the Lord's commission, and now he was consumed. 
If we, had ta- if we have tasted the sweetness of fellowship with the King of Kings, the Great Commission should not be a have-to for us, an obligation for us. It should be something that consumes us, something that we delight in. Paul wrote these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. The love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Compels means it leaves me with no choice. I can't help myself. Paul, like Isaiah, had encountered the love of Jesus. In fact, he had his own crisis, did he not? There's a parallel between what happened to Isaiah and Paul. Paul thought he was doing God's work. God's man. Pharisee of Pharisees. Didn't know Jesus. He has an encounter. A crisis of encounter. He's blinded. He's knocked to the floor. God bestows mercy, forgives Paul, commissions Paul. And here he says, I'm compelled. Send me, God. It's my prayer that this message, as we have this time of missions emphasis, will inspire all of us to deepen our engagement and involvement in the Great Commission, yes, locally, but also abroad. But I pray that this has happened and this is happening because God has ignited in us a fire to know him. Talked about half the world or 40%, a little more than 40% still waiting for the gospel. The world is waiting and, and so don't misunderstand. We, we must go. But before we go, folks, we must burn. We must be ignited John Stott, theologian now in heaven, he sums it up best. We do not speak for Christ because we do not so love his name that we cannot bear to see him unacknowledged and unadored. If only our eyes were open to see his glory, and if only we felt wounded by the shame of his public humiliation among men, we should not be able to remain silent. Rather, we would echo the apostles' words. We cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. Folks, you're going into a new season of missions. This retooling of the vision has been built on the past. But we're trusting God for greater things in the days to come. But let me say this, a more and fruitful season, which I believe is coming, it doesn't begin, folks, with a new focus on the world. Becomes with a new, it comes with a new vision of Jesus Christ and his glory and his greatness. Oh, that he would ignite our hearts to know him and then we'll have passion and fire to make him known. Would you pray with me? Father, help us to see Jesus. If there's anything in our lives that is clouding our vision of the king, we 
We pray that you would expose it. And through the power of your spirit, you would help us to do away with it. We confess that we have distractions and that we're often lukewarm in our zeal for you. God, lead us to repentance by showing us the beauty of Jesus. And then amaze us that we not only are forgiven, but we get to be a part of spreading that glory to our neighbors, but also to the nations. God, I thank you for Midlands. I I pray that incredible ministry and missions fruitfulness would be in front of them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.